Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast, and this is episode 26. With me, I have Malatha from the First Nations Union. Malatha, how you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Glad to be back. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great, Is You know, it's great to have you back. For those that remember, uh, the last time we had Malatha was episode 21 when we talked about Indigenous autonomism in the OIA. So, Malatha, since then, what have you been up to? What has changed and what's going on? Yeah, so um, it's actually been a pretty productive year, I'd say. It's been about a little bit under a year since we've done that episode together. But, um, you know, just been uh, growing a lot personally. You know, I've been doing a lot of things in terms of my own self-development, my own spiritual development, getting closer with uh, my Elikchi, my medicine man, um, getting closer with, you know, my ancestors and things of that nature, and also kind of translating that stuff into the work that uh, I do. So the Organization for Indigenous Autonomy uh, kind of has uh, gone through a lot of changes um, to the point where it's not really a thing anymore, actually. Um, It's been kind of uh, molded and morphed into this First Nations Union kind of concept, which we can talk about um, a little bit later on. But, you know, uh, just been sitting down with some really great people, uh, learning a lot about myself, learning a lot about my community that I come from, and just you know, trying my best to bring that to the table um, everywhere I go. So, yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, on the notion of the First Nations Union, recently, this last weekend, well, for us, this last weekend, uh, the First Nations Union website went up. Talk to us a bit about what's the goal of the website. Yeah, so the First Nations Union website is, um, it's actually really a, uh, a major thing for us because the First Nations Union has been sort of tossed around as like, a idea um and i think that it's time that we start bringing a little bit into action now obviously this isn't the extent of what we want but you know it's a start uh the first nations union website is very much so that we can kind of get um our main ideas out there it's it's literally a a collective of us you know indigenous autonomists from all sorts of different backgrounds uh whether that be tribal background uh even racial background um, whether that be, you know, uh, coming at it from different political perspectives, you know, coming from all, all around the political aisle, um, kind of coming together and building this website. So you'll see that we have, you know, information on how to get involved with us. We have information about um, just kind of some of our core beliefs. We're looking to spread more indigenous autonomous uh, literature and media as those things continue to be developed. Because um, as you know, most indigenous autonomous um, information, knowledge, uh, is still actually in oral tradition form, um, you know, as it's been for the last, you know, time time immemorial amongst our ancestors and our communities. So, um, yeah, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's just uh, that first starting hub of where our people can kind of get together, start networking, um, and sort of flush out the First Nations Union. Really cool. Before we go any further, let's reiterate, we've talked about it before, but let's get into it again. What is Indigenous autonomism and how is it different from other liberation movements regarding indigenous peoples? Sure. So indigenous autonomism is, uh, it's basically this pre-political identity. And what that means is, is that indigenous autonomism is not, um, it's not, the first question people will always ask is, is it like a branch of Marxist autonomism? You know, the the more popular theory of uh, Marxist autonomism in like the Mediterranean countries back in the day. Um, it is not. So indigenous autonomism is a makeup of obviously two words. Indigenous, which means, you know, a person that is native to a place um, or, you know, a person, uh, uh, a plant, animal that is that is native to a place. 
and autonomism, which is, you know, autonomy, you know, self-governance, sovereignty, et cetera. Um, and ism is obviously a belief system. But, you know, if I had to describe what indigenous autonomism is, it's the ideology of basically generational resistance uh, to the deletion of our culture, um, to assimilation, and to colonialism. So it's not a left-wing or a right-wing ideology in the traditional form. And we always use this um, kind of saying, you know, left-wing and right-wing are both wings of the colonial bird that is eating away at our self-governance and so our goal is not to be a part of that bird but to shoot that bird to hunt that bird um if that makes sense so it's not partisan it's not a partisan thing it's all about indigenous liberation in a holistic sense okay and i think some people might then ask well what does liberation mean uh, because I think often, especially in the realm of like uh, neoliberal identity politics, you get mm-hmm. this, oh, if we just have more queer drone drone pilots, right? We're going to have LGBT inclusion right. or more black representation in Hollywood, more indigenous TV show, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It's perf- really performative and it's always market oriented or government right. oriented. Right. So what does autonomism actually mean? So... In the, I guess, in kind of the sense that you were just discussing, it's not, and we have this saying, it is not converting the corporation into a co-op, it's burning the corporation to the ground, which is to say, you cannot reform the colonial governments that exist on this hemisphere, on this continent, what's commonly referred to as America, the collective of North and South. Um, You can't just put a Native American quote unquote president in charge of the United States and everything's going to be better. It is the complete restructuring of the stewardship systems and well, not restructuring, but the rebirth of the stewardship systems um, and full sovereignty of indigenous people over their homelands. That's not just over their reservations. That's not just over what is gifted to us from the government. You know, when they say, Oh, you guys can have this park in the middle of, you know, whatever it is full and absolute sovereignty over the entirety of our traditional homelands. Okay, very cool. So let's go in. I'm going to kind of use the website to guide the discussion here uh, and then to get into some deeper conversations. So the first kind of drop down section is the get involved. So when you become, when it says become a member, join the FNU, what I would point, a few things come out to me. There's three things and we don't have to go to them in this order, but the constituent population, the accomplice program, but also that the First Nations Union rejects colonial notions of indigenous status. Blood quantum and tribal recognition status are not considered when reviewing applications. Can you get into that last part, the idea of blood quantum and tribal recognition and why those things are dangerous in indigenous spaces? Sure. So um, indigenous autonomous thought classically believes that there are three uh, types of indigenous identity. And you can be any of these three altogether. You can be two, but not the third. You, you can be any combination of these things. Um, and we'll kind of get into the breakdown of that. So there is political indigenous status. That means that you are enrolled in a Native American quote unquote tribe. A tribal government recognizes you as a member of their community and you are enrolled in that tribe. There is Um, racially indigenous, which means you are indigenous by race. I mean, it's your blood, um, you know, that's your core, um, racial makeup is indigenous. And then there's cultural indigenous. That means that your main culture, um, the things that you practice, uh, in terms of your day-to-day life, uh, how you seat yourself in relationship to the earth is indigenous based culture. 
And so um, the United States government, Canadian government, and typically most of the other um, colonial states that exist, they tend to view the importance of indigenous status based solely on that political aspect. Um, and when you put it on that political aspect and you ignore the cultural aspect um, or even ignore the racial aspect, you lose a lot of sovereignty for our communities to continue to develop our cultures, to continue to keep those things alive, those life ways. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, well, I guess let's break down the, the two different things I'm talking about here in specifically uh, that blurb from the website. So blood quantum is basically your quote unquote percentage makeup of native blood. And that's based on basically the math of like, okay, your grandma was a full blood and she married a white person. So there's a half blood and then kind of going down from there. Uh, blood quantum is actually really dangerous. There's a lot of tribes that have uh, either 100% or 50% blood quantum requirements to join. And that's when you leave situations where it's like, okay, well, what if I'm a quarter and I can't join my tribe because, you know, but like I grew up culturally indigenous. Now I'm disenfranchised and what am I supposed to do? And this is kind of where we get into tribal recognition status. You know, some of those people from those communities will come together and they will join what are called unrecognized or state recognized tribes. And that's usually just communities of native people that uh, either don't have what we call federal recognition, which means the U.S. government, quote unquote, validates that they're a legitimate, quote unquote, Native American tribe. Um, or in some cases, those tribes lost recognition because of, you know, U.S. government policies to eradicate those tribes, such as termination of the 1950s. Um, and because of kind of the uh, way that Indian country plays out, you know, a lot of federally recognized political natives actually attack those state and unrecognized tribal communities. They call them illegitimate. They say they're not authentic uh, and things of those nature. And I don't think that that is helpful to a conversation about rebuilding you know, a red nation, you know, having a indigenous focused sovereignty movement. It's not helpful if we are using these metrics that are not original to our life ways, such as blood quantum, such as tribal recognition status. You know, if I went back to 1491 and I was talking to someone who was the chief of my tribe at that time, and I was like, hey, you know, I have uh, blood from this tribe that is, you know, not officially recognized. They'd be like, dude, what are you even talking about? <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you even mean? So mm -hmm. it's kind of just pushing back against those things that were put onto us and letting our communities determine who are legitimate members, you know, without needing that, fe that federal government oppression kind of pushed onto us. Where does that come from? The... The blood quantum, I know obviously tribal recognition is, are you recognized by the so-called authority, right? The United mm -hmm. States government or other or other governments. But in the right. case of the blood quantum, is that something that's placed, is that a requirement placed upon these these tribal governments? Or, or of course, as we've talked about before, essentially just colonial puppet state or puppet governments. Mm -hmm. Like where is it, where does it come from? So blood quantum was initially developed by the United States government and was forced onto tribes. Um, and just throughout the years of these tribal governments becoming essentially puppet governments, you know, we talk about uh, in the last episode that they're essentially, you know, small U.S. or uh, Canadian or Mexican governments that are put in place, um, et cetera. Not just those three states, but all, you know, all the states on this hemisphere. Um, you know, they started to put that up themselves. 
And so, you know, in especially federally recognized tribes, and it is a problem in other tribes too, but in specifically federally recognized tribes, there is just a, a large problem with this kind of like colonial minded, this colonial mindedness that's been pushed onto us for so long that people have started to adopt it in their, you know, day to day lives and mindset. Um, you know, I've talked about before examples like the Lumbee, you know, the Lumbee are a, uh, amalgam tribe. They were a group of people that were, uh, just, they're descended from refugees that had fled, you know, colonial attacks and they made it to Lumberton, uh, in North Carolina down there. And they built their community as like a refugee safe haven, you know, for indigenous people and also, you know, black folks that were escaping slavery at the time. And, um, you know, they all mixed in together and they developed this beautiful community and a lot of federally recognized native people and tribal governments push very hard to make sure the Lumbee cannot, you know, be recognized. And they say they're not native American people. Um, they call them anti-black racial slurs because they have that black admixture. I mean, if you're a native with curly hair, <laughs> a lot of times people just come at you and they assume you're Lumbee, you know? So it's just something mm -hmm. that they deal with. Um, and we don't, we don't support that stuff at the First Nations Union. You know, we have the we have the idea that if you are indigenous and your community is a valid indigenous community, like you are welcome in our community. Okay, it, out of total totally random, but I I don't think you and I have talked about this. Maybe we have. Were the Lumbee the ones that had conflict with the Ku Klux Klan? Yes, yes. Uh, they had the Battle of Hayes Pond in the 1950s. Um, the Ku Klux Klan was. Uh, starting to agitate uh, the Lumbee and they were coming to spread disruptful messages uh, in Lumbee country and the Lumbee showed up armed and they were like, Hey, not in our community. And so they ran them off. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. That just, that just popped up in my mind when you were talking about that. So if you reject blood quantum and tribal recognition, then I guess the next step is what qualifies someone to be in the FNU, like, and so I guess that next part is the constituent population. And you've mentioned there's there's four of them here: the tribalized indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere, detribalized indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere, occupied indigenous peoples not of the Western Hemisphere, and freedmen. Can we break those four points down? Sure. So tribalized indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere are essentially people that are enrolled members of any tribe, band, or group of Native Americans. That's not just federally recognized, that's also state recognized, and that is also some unrecognized. The problem that you get into with the unrecognized area is there are a lot of legitimate tribal communities, but there's also a lot of people like the Flying Bear Band of the, the Arizona Cherokee, and you have to be careful with people like that because a lot of times it's, you know, just people that are trying to appropriate that indigenous identity or a lot of times people that have... Um, created these things to try to get tax benefits and stuff of that nature. But there are still a lot of unrecognized tribal bands, groups, and communities that, um, you know, are legitimate. And so if you're enrolled in a unrecognized state recognized or federally recognized tribal community that, you know, has that legitimacy, um, then you are more than welcome to join as a tribalized indigenous person of the Western hemisphere. Um, are detribalized indigenous peoples of the Western hemisphere. So uh, in the last, time that we recorded, I specifically mentioned, quote unquote, the Latino uh, slash mestizo community. And I found throughout my time, um, you know, just learning and reflecting on that, you know, it's not, I don't think it's conducive uh, to have a conversation about Latino mestizo 
um, when you're talking about people joining the First Nations Union, because those people that are looking at joining the First Nations Union have already sort of rejected that identity. They've already rejected sort of their uh, Castilian Spaniardness, their colonizer sort of like culture that has been handed to them. They've made their decision and their decision was to realign themselves with their indigenous ancestry. Now, in uh, Latin American countries specifically, it's actually very tough to be enrolled in indigenous tribes, very typically. Um, I'll give you some examples. You know, there could be someone who is a full blood living in a Mexican Pueblo and, um, you know, speaks their language, all that stuff. And let's say their daughter wants to go to Mexico City to go to college to, um, you know, broaden her horizons and allow her to go, you know, sort of live her life and do those things. The second that she steps off that Pueblo, she is no longer considered Native American and she is now just a regular everyday uh, Mexican citizen. So that's like how, you know, it's very tough to connect the, to those communities and it's very tough for those communities to be able to um, expand their population base. Cause like I said, the second you leave your Pueblo or the second that you lose your language, you know, you're pretty much deleted. So, um, you know, a lot of those people that are um, indigenous to those areas south of the Rio Grande, they cannot join their tribal, you know, uh, culture group. They can't join that. They're not allowed to. And also there's a lot of people here. You know, we just talked about people that are blood quantum, not of their tribes. You know, they are also legitimately indigenous and they'll, they're probably, in, you know, legitimately culturally as well, but they just don't have that opportunity to join their tribe. So that's kind of like an all encompassing term there. Uh, occupied, occupied indigenous peoples not of the western hemisphere think about like um and and it's arguable if these are in the western hemisphere or not but like for me you know like hawaii or uh, samoa or guam or you know other pe people that are living on what is essentially american colonies you know the united states colonized those lands during world war ii world war one spanish american war etc um, and they have not been able to receive their sovereignty. And so in our opinion, those people have a very common struggle with us. They are also an indigenous people, you know, um, inter-indigenous connections are important, especially when, you know, our land um, is being occupied and that occupation government is occupying their land. So having that sort of uh, work together. And then freedmen, um, freedmen are essentially descendants of African peoples who were enslaved by the five federally recognized tribes, or the, not the five federally recognized tribes, the five um, civilized tribes, quote unquote, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, uh, Cherokee, and Muscogee. And um, these people, after uh, the American Civil War and after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation and stuff of that nature, these tribes said, you know, we're going to give you citizenship um, and, you know, you'll be a part of our communities. And a lot of those freedmen, you know, um, their ancestors and them, you know, are, you know, fluent speakers of their language. They only ever have known those cultures. Um, after, you know, a set amount of time, these tribal governments were like, nah, never mind. And so they disenrolled, uh, almost all of them disenrolled most of their freedmen and won't let them rejoin. And so those people, in our belief, have earned the right to claim, like, to be indigenous, to have that indigenous status. Um, they are culturally indigenous people. Uh, their political indigenous status was taken away from them, and we don't think that's right. So that's kind of our uh, thought behind the freedmen. Okay, and just to be clear, freedmen only uh, are on, only in relation to the five, the so-called five civilized tribes. Yes, like this yes. doesn't extend. I don't know, like the history of slavery with indigenous peoples. 
obviously after European contact. Uh, but was there, is there any, are there people that can be considered freemen that do, are not descended from the five civilized tribe cultures? As far as I know, no, because the five civilized tribes existed in the Southeast, which is, you know, obviously was like the lands that the Confederacy of um, the CSA sort of propagated itself. And okay. the, the five civilized tribes actually took slaves as a means of um, trying to make themselves look more civilized and legitimate because that's what the whites were doing. So those communities are the ones that ended up, you know, uh, uh, basically participating in this enslavement and this oppression of African peoples. There are other people that say that they're freedmen that, you know, that, that has now sort of become a colloquial term for like Afro-Indigenous in a sense. They are very separate in, um, you know, like what they actually mean. But there are people that'll say like, you know, um, I'm mostly black, but I have Indigenous ancestry and my tribe won't let me enroll because they're anti-black, those sorts of things. Uh, but very typically, that's a different. There's a different label associated with that than Friedman. Okay, so there's an intersection of anti-blackness, but being Afro-Indigenous does not mean you are a Friedman. Exactly. Okay, understood. All right. Before moving on to the accomplice section, let's talk about what is the difference between becoming a member and being a volunteer. Yeah. What is the idea for that? So membership is specifically for people that are looking at getting involved with some of the programs that we like the organization of the programs that we want to put out. Um, volunteers are the people that are going to be spending time working on those programs. And, you know, for a lot of people being a member of an organization sort of has this like almost like a strict or a like stressful undertone to it because it, it automatically is associated with like having a commitment um, so we want to offer volunteer ability for people that are like, I support, you know, what this is doing, but I don't feel like I have the time or the space to be a member of an organization to be consistently, um, you know, bombarded with emails or, you know, hit up for like campaigns and stuff like that. So um, that's kind that's, that's pretty much the difference between those two positions. Okay. That makes sense. So with that, then let's talk about the accomplice program. So sure. the website says, the FNU Accomplice Program is an initiative of the First Nations Union that offers a unique opportunity for non-constituents and other individuals to support our cause. Through the Accomplice Program, you can show your support by connecting with one of our affiliated organizations that represent diverse cultural and racial identities. These organizations work closely with us and share our vision for the FNU project. By joining the Accomplice Program, you become a valuable ally in our efforts to advance the rights and interests of First Nations communities. Your contributions, whether financial or through other means, will help us to achieve our goals. Don't miss this opportunity to make a positive impact. Contact the email below to join the Accomplice Program and connect with one of our, one of our affiliated organizations today. So, what does that all mean? Okay, so um, the Accomplice Program is a place for people that are not Indigenous to be able to help with our mission. And the reason that we have it as sort of like a, an aside or a separate is because, you know, within the First Nations Union, we want to promote a atmosphere of holistic healing. And a lot of our people that want to be supportive, you know, as much as we appreciate it, but they come from, you know, the white community, which for a lot of indigenous people is still a very triggering experience to have. Um, you know, people coming into their community, trying to make a name for themselves and trying to do all these sorts of things, you know, resume building or whatever. Exactly. Resume building and stuff of that nature. So in order to um, better comfort our members, because again, we have um, in the First Nations Union, we have members that are boarding school survivors. 
we have members that uh, have family members that have been lost to the MMIW crisis. So to build a more you elaborate, don't want to cut you off, but MMIW for those that don't know, what does that mean? Missing and murdered indigenous women. It's the epidemic of uh, missing and murdered indigenous women being indigenous women being the uh, a major statistic uh, within missing and murdered um, uh, overall numbers. Even though we represent such a low portion of the the population uh, in places like Canada, you're looking at like. 16 to 20 percent of missing women are indigenous i'm not sure the exact number but i think it's comparable in the united states wow okay gotcha so but all um, right as for the accomplice program you know we're trying to build uh, for our members and our volunteers a space of cultural mutual understanding we're trying to build a space of holistic healing which involves you know spiritual physical mental and emotional healing um, and we think that it's not um, the best idea to allow certain uh, people from the white community in those spaces just because of, you know, I've been in organizing in the past and I've had a lot of problem with white people kind of pushing their way into it. Uh, but we mm-hmm. do have we do have organizations um, in what we call the Tree of Life community. Um, I'm not sure if we talked about that in the last episode, actually, but as a quick kind of, um, you know, bringing it back, the Tree of Life is a... Basically, it's a group of um, all sorts of racial and cultural backgrounds coming together to support the idea of a holistic healing of the earth, which translates to bringing indigenous autonomy and sort of like um, environmental um, liberation to the forefront. And so, you know, we have uh, we have a group right now. We have an organization right now that's specifically focusing on um, people that are white identifying. And we're always looking to expand, obviously, uh, to kind of get more people to come into it. But, um, yeah, that's kind of the Accomplice program in a nutshell. So the hope is then to connect people to those particular groups then. So for the white group, if someone, sa- if someone fills this out, hey, I am... A white activist or i'm white and interested in advancing the cause of indigenous people the hope then is that they get connected to to that group or some other group precisely to their identity precisely and you know what that does for us is that allows us to um kind of help build up those organizations the organizations that we work with uh they do a lot of uh, great work they have a lot of great people in them and also another thing it's so that if we get those people that are resume builders that are just trying to take up space you know, we can send them to those groups and those groups can kind of make that determination. Like, are they really here for the right reasons? And right. That, that might either, you know, have that person that might take up some space from that person and kind of help them understand like what they're doing is harmful or, you know, it might have them, you know, kind of second guess what they're doing and, you know, maybe they fizzle off. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, so I guess in relation to to the tree of life from conversations we've had, we're going to jump ahead to the to the platform with the idea of prophetic interpretation. Okay. Or, so I guess we actually, I guess, it, yeah. So we'll go with the interpreting prophecy. So can we talk about the prophecy and the tree of life and how that relates to the tree of life with that philosophy? Because to me, there's a lot of intersection between these different things. For sure. Um, So the Red Nation prophecy is a prophecy written by Crazy Horse, and we actually used an abridged version um, on our website. Um, If someone wants to read the full version, all you have to do is type in Red Nation prophecy by Crazy Horse. But the abridged version that we have on our website says, upon suffering, beyond suffering, 
the red nation shall rise again, and it shall be a blessing for a sick world, a world filled with broken promises, promises, selfishness, and separations, a world longing for light again. I see a time of seven generations when all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life and the whole earth will become one circle again. And so uh, specifically on this page, um, our goal is to break down the prophecy and kind of show you what the First Nations Union as a collective body agrees um, is like our role to play in it. So did you want me to focus specifically on the tree of life or do you want me to kind of just go over the whole thing? We can go over both, but before we do that, I guess based off this prophecy uh, and what this is saying and with the tree of life, it might be important to bring up a, a, a place of controversy that I have had when I've talked about this that I know you've experienced. But when people just claim, well, aren't you just being like an ethno-nationalist? Like, is the FNU, you've used, I, I don't want to misquote you, but some to the effect, it, the First Nations Union is a First Nation, it's a nation- it's a it's a community of First Nations, not for First Nations or something like that. What 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 is the the idea there? Yeah, so um, you know we reject ethno nationalism and chauvinism in all of its forms, and that's actually um, on our like our official quote unquote platform. But yes, the First Nations Union is a union of First Nations, but it's not a union for First Nations alone. You know, we this this is why we kind of follow this prophecy is because the prophecy does not just say that the red nation will rise and it's going to heal a sick Western hemisphere. The The prophecy specifically says that the red nation will rise again and it will be a blessing for a sick world, a world that's filled with broken promises, a world that's full of se uh, selfishness and a world that's full of separations. It's a world that's longing for light again. That's a direct quote from the prophecy that we follow verbatim. Like that's our most, out of every identity that comes together in the First Nations Union, everyone absolutely agrees on this prophecy kind of being the leading factor and so you know one of the things that i've specifically been told is like you know and, and i i understand it coming from a white perspective because white perspectives are so um based on this idea of getting revenge for the wrongs that happen it's like what happens to white people well if white people are left unchecked you know or if white people are you know kind of under this indigenous governance what's going to happen are they going to be killed off are they getting deported and as much as a lot of people like to make jokes within the fnu the like official stance honestly is just that you know there needs to be a holistic healing for all people there needs to be a holistic healing for white people for black people for asian people for brown people for indigenous people uh, everyone on this earth is experiencing generational trauma from a time of the deletion of our traditional life ways um and so that's what the fnu is seeking to promote it's again it's not just fixing the issues that happen for native people it's fixing the issues for all of humanity so that we can return to one circle again and be in connection and in cycle with the earth mother mm -hmm. okay that makes sense so i guess then you're talking about how everyone around the world faces this and so i guess the next kind of controversy then would be the issue of of the nation of nationhood of national liberation mm -hmm. uh so some people might accuse it say well aren't you just trying to make like another nation state um because they hear first nation mm -hmm. right they, they i think because of the word nation when applied to indigenous people doesn't quite always mean the same thing as like a nation on like the national level right, right. like those aren't quite the same thing so is it fair to say the first nations union is a non it's it's not a, it's neither a nation nor a state 
and it's, so it's certainly not a nation state, right? Well, well, the the definition of a nation is simply a group of people with a shared culture, uh, a shared background, and shared identity. That's what a nation is, and that is the English word that was prescribed to, um, you know, categorize all these different things. But a nation state is, I mean, it's a sovereign uh, entity essentially that has citizens and subjects and it's relatively homogenous, you know, in sort of common descent and it has a structured central authority and government. The first nations union as an idea is structured around confederacies of indigenous times, such as the Haudenosaunee or such as the Muscogee. And so the kind of breakdown of how the Muscogee did it was there's various clans and those clans would unify together to form tribal towns. And those tribal towns would unify together with other tribal towns that had the exact same culture, uh, exact same religion, you know, everything was the same, and they would form these confederacies. And now a confederacy is not like, here's the president of the confederacy, here's the vice president, here's the council, let's do it like this. Basically, the way that it worked was all of these tribal chiefs agreed to protect each other so that their people could travel freely between tribal towns and they had the ability to just live their everyday lives and it was to protect against enemy tribes it was to protect against you know it was to sort of form like a common way that they could solve inner town issues and things of that nature and so the fnu is just the like logical conclusion to that which is you know we've been under an illegal military occupation uh since 1492 at the earliest and all of our people, you know, post-liberation, I mean, you got to think, do you really think the rest of the world is going to not try to reclaim the plunder that was the Western Hemisphere? If the United States, Canada, and the rest of the Western Hemisphere was to collapse, the entire world would be trying to go for a scramble. And so it's not necessarily saying, like, <coughs> here's the First Nations Union. It is a large, mega, you know, ultra state. It's a bunch of confederacies coming together and saying, okay, we ourselves are in a state of dismay. We have lost our connection with Earth Mother. We've lost our connection with our ancestors, and we've lost our connection with our identity. If the rest of the world is coming at us at the same time, we're not going to make it. The point of the FNU is common defense, and it's essentially being able to solve issues between each other without resulting in genocide or killing each other. <laughs> because like i said you know we talk about the federally recognized tribe state recognized tribe issues there's a lot of these confederacies within our or within our um proposed organization that have state recognized unrecognized and federally recognized in them there's a lot that just have state and unrecognized in them there's a lot that just have federally recognized in them so all of those people are going to have different, you know, it's it, because of the internalized colonialism and the things forced onto us, all these people are going to be, for lack of a better term, at each other's necks. So it's, you know, it's up to like a, almost like a healing committee or a healing council. I, I don't like to use the word committee, but, you know, it's hard for me to put it into, you know, what I'm, where it's coming from my heart into English, um, such a harsh language, but, you know, having basically the ability to heal safely is like the whole purpose of the first nations union that's it it is like a big sheet that we can cover over us while the rest of the world does its thing and tries to hurt us and then once the rest of the world heals we take the sheet off that's, that's all there is to it okay 
Do you think someone might throw a, well, that just sounds a lot like Marxism-Leninism and the state's going to dissolve when it's not needed anymore. Well, well, How would you? well, here's the thing. The First Nation Union is not a state. Again, it's still a collective defense. It's not, right. it's not, there's no president of the First Nations Union. There's no big chief. There's no grand council. If anything, it's all the confederacies coming together and being like, okay, here is the issues that we have. What can we do to fix them? What have your what has your community done to fix this in the past? You also have to think the eagle and the condor, what we refer to as the eagle and the condor, North America, South America. These two indigenous communities on these continents have not really had much dialogue with each other in centuries. So there's a lot of issues that these people down here are facing that people up in the north have been through and dealt with in certain ways or you know in the south a lot of those communities are also like recently contacted uncontacted the wealth of knowledge that those communities have that we have lost is insane so again it's also about fostering that conversation again so we can have a holistic healing um but yeah, it's not it's not like the USSR where we have the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic and the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic and so on and so forth. It's a bunch of people with guns saying, "Hey, leave us alone. We're trying to fix ourselves here." It's it's like a it's like if your therapy session had some armed guards outside. Right. And of course, well we on a civilized don't condone violence. Indigenous people are constantly in a state of self-defense. Right. And I, I, I don't think I need to elaborate more. Um, you, you know, another interesting thing, and I'm sorry to kind of take this away from you, but, um, you know, I've actually been told before, how is this not a Marxist-Leninist movement when you have things like no property ownership, uh, you have things like national liberation as a core value and stuff of that nature. And I think one of the things I need to really dispel is this myth that we, we are a national liberation group. I think mm -hmm. that national liberation more so seeks to liberate the people, but it's not holistic. Full liberation is like your spiritual, your mental, your emotional, and your physical liberation. But basically speaking, national liberation as a Marxist identity is like, we're going to free these people. They'll have aspects of their culture, but they need to organize in a radically democratic Marxist society. Right. That, is, that is not national liberation. That is actually... That is freeing people from one oppressor and giving them another ideological oppressor that they immediately have to feed into. You know, taking away our lifeways is not liberation. If you right. take if you take the U.S., you disband it, you give indigenous people the authority, but you say it, it it's a communist Marxist state, you're deleting a lot of things. You know, communist Marxism it does not have kinship ways like we have. It does not have this sort of it, it actually it really speaks out against spiritual connections to things. And that's a big portion of our identity is that we have spiritual connections to our homelands. Our homelands, right. the reason our homeland is important is not because it's, you know, the land just where we existed, like we would naturally form a, a state there. It's important because it's like our religious homeland. We have a, we are a part of that natural cycle. We are ingrained in it our languages are built around it our ideas beliefs are everything that is us is built around our homeland and so if you right. kind of apply this communist 
Marxist socialist sheet over everything, you're deleting a lot of that importance in our culture. And that's just not, that's not cool. That's not cool. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, you know, and I think this is where, where some of my philosophy has been recently, um, or not my philosophy so much as some of my thinking, but kind of the idea of the third world liberation movements that came about 50s, 60s, 70s, right, right. during the Cold War, how a, a lot of those, while they might not have been at their core front for the Soviet Union, a lot of mm -hmm. them ended up unfortunately falling into that, but yeah. how many of them you know, a nation, right? So think about just the region of most states, say in Africa or Southeast Asia, right? How many of them actually historically are are home to many different uh, tribes or nations? But a right. nation state is usually just, for lack of a better word, the supremacy of one nation over the rest. So let's say in Vietnam, I read the biography of, of Ho Chi Minh recently and how Ho Chi Minh, you know, like people forget it's not just like the Vietnamese people, like what I think people mean by that is like everyone, like they have a particular idea, like they don't, or they, or they just think they're all the same as opposed to like, it's actually people of several different backgrounds. Like mm -hmm. China, when you say someone's Chinese, do you mean Han Chinese or like the, what is it? Something like hundreds of ethnic groups that live in China right. that are all quote Chinese, mm -hmm. like a, a national liberation historically usually just means the ascendancy of one nation over the rest, which exactly. to me, it's not quite the same thing. I'm not trying to say it is, but it does remind me of the American Revolution in some sense. That it was the ascendancy of one nation over the others. Right. No, for sure. Right. I think. I think. That's and, it's not, it's, and it's not quite the same because one of them was still like a colonial one that separated from its mother nation, as opposed to people within the, the historically same land or region, mm -hmm. and then one just rose above the others or several yeah. rows, right, in relationship. But that's why you see, even now in Africa, you have different. Uh, ethnic groups who are vying for control. And of mm -hmm. course, when these indigenous groups stand up, even you know the US or the UN will step in to enforce the rule of a nation state because it only recognizes nation states right. as legitimate. It doesn't right. recognize non-nation states. Yeah, so it's very much that essentially fourth world liberation. It's not third world liberation. Yeah, we don't seek to have like uh, you know, the situation with African nation states where they've developed their own, um, well, typically, you know, under the uh, the stewardship of the colonial governments that once owned them, putting in their, uh, you know, their specific puppets and being like, okay, you guys need to do exactly this and we are still taking all your resources. And also you can do some tomfoolery if you want to. Um, yeah, right. that's, not, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for complete and total sovereignty for every uh, nationhood, quote unquote, lack of a better term, uh, every tribal people that exist on this continent, North and South America, as well as we know, we talked about this before inter-indigenous it's like, we can't, we don't want to say internationalism because that's, you know, that's a very Marxist centric term, but inter-indigenous, you know, the indigenous struggle is not just here in the Western hemisphere, it's global. And another thing that's really important is that it, it takes shape in a lot of different ways. You know, every human being is indigenous to somewhere. You know, no human being is synthetic, but there are human beings that have deleted their connection to their homelands, that have deleted their traditional stewardship practices in favor of um, technological progress or domination over one another or something of that nature. And that's something that also needs to be really analyzed and kind of figured out how to correct uh, over time. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, but, but yeah, for sure, for sure. 
Okay, so going back now, because that, you know, that was good, but let's head back now to the, the idea of the prophecy in its relationship to, as you say, you know, it's kind of the first half is the red nation and the second half is kind of like, for the lack of a better word, everyone else, mm-hmm. right? The sacred tree of life. Let's, so let's right. return to that and what and break this down for us. Sure. So if in case anyone's already forgotten, the second half of the red nation prophecy is I see a time of seven generations when all the colors of mankind will gather under the sacred tree of life and the whole earth will become one circle again. So the sacred tree of life uh, for us has kind of manifested into this tree of life community, which again is kind of this organize your own community based approach uh, to uh, developing indigenous autonomous movements, or uh, some people have used terms like green anarchy, um, you know, whatever it is that people want to identify themselves as within their own group. Um, And the idea is that, you know, all of the, the cult, all the races of the world, all the ethnicities of the world, are all in essence facing these um, cultural traumas that have been inflicted upon them. Again, whether that's from back in the time of the Romans, or if that's from continuing still today with, you know, the occupation of uh, a lot of indigenous people um, globally. So it's basically saying, you know, we want you to have that holistic healing, but we don't have the space or the cultural knowledge of your specific culture to be able to help you. So we are kind of amassing as many organizations as possible that are looking to fulfill that goal uh, so that they can kind of come in and be like, okay, oh, you're, you know, you're a, um, an African descended person here in the quote unquote United States. Come join us. This is what we kind of have planned for that. Oh, you're a, uh, you know, an Asian person in the United States. Come join us. This is what we have planned for that. You're a white person, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and the idea is that, you know, we have that holistic healing globally and we're able to kind of become one circle again and get human beings, um, from having that synthetic identity to rejoining their place in the natural cycle with earth mother. That's kind of the idea of the sacred tree of life. Right. So you speak globally. So what is the relationship between the FNU or perhaps indigenous autonomism? What is its relevance to the global world? So obviously the FNU can't, I guess, exist safely, as you mentioned, in a global, in a world made up of global nation, you know, global nation states, right? right. This is a world of nation states that we live in. Mm-hmm. So is the idea that the FNU, you know, there's, for lack of a better word, many First Nations unions around the world, for the lack of a better term, like indigenous unions the world over, Yeah, I for guess. Sure. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, there is, I mean, like, again, readdressing it, everyone is indigenous to somewhere, but there are people that have maintained, um, or rather cultures that have maintained that connection to sacred earth mother that have maintained their culture that have maintained their identity. And, you know, those people are very oppressed in their homelands. You know, we have people like the Maori who are in, uh, Aotearoa, you know, New Zealand. And I'm sorry if I messed that up, my Maori friends. Um, but, uh, or we have people like the quote unquote aboriginals in Australia. Uh, you also have people in the middle East, you know, um, the middle East, literally the English and uh, French and other European governments sat down and were like, okay, here's a river, here's some mountains, here's a field. Okay. This is Syria. This is Iraq. And they put together all these different peoples that historically had issues with each other and they did not offer any holistic healing for those people. They were just kind of like, all right. See ya. 
and I, <laughs> they created this stuff. So you know, there's genocides going on all across the the world globally, and you know, I think that those people have a struggle that we would love to be able to assist with, you know, helping them find a place where they can develop their own movement and in essence lead to their own indigenous liberation. Um, indigenous autonomism is not inherently the red man's political ideology. It's again, it's the ideology of the resistance of colonialism and the resistance of assimilation uh, into colonial power. And right. I, think, I mean, and this goes back. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I was just going to say, I think that's universal. I think that's just a universal thing that anyone right. that is from those types of communities can relate to. Right. And I think it's, you know, you know, anti-civilization anarchists, green anarchists, anarcho-primitivists, right? Whatever term you want to use that is something similar to what I believe. Mm-hmm. Like we should see, we see that, you know, um, in our own analysis, whether that's uh, Zerzan's uh, People's History of Civilization, Freddie Perlman's uh, Agents History Against Leviathan, mm-hmm. uh, the importance of understanding indigenous struggles, uh, the struggles against, like, I mean, it's important to remember most of these states, like, I would say all states exist against the will. Like, when you go as far back as you need, people mm-hmm. struggled against it. Yeah, for sure. People didn't want it. Um, you know, even like, agriculture does not i mean in some cases yeah it seemed to be freely adopted in some cases but in others right a different life way was forced upon another at the expense of traditional life ways exactly right i mean the world over yeah right i mean and it's and it's crazy that some people you know some you know there's some primitivists that kind of pull this it's almost like the the leftist like class reductionism like, oh, we're all workers, or it's like, oh, well, we're all here, we're all colonized, we're all the same. Uh, the irony is that you say that as someone who's on land that was colonized, right? Right? Like, that doesn't like, do, like, don't get me wrong, yeah. Like, you can, I can see kind of where someone's trying to come from and mm-hmm. like trying to build solidarity, but then they go so far as to basically remove to erase other people's struggles, exactly. You know? They don't come full circle with what they're saying. Right. And so the, the, the further you would go with that, if you follow it, it's okay, we're all colonized. Therefore, we should all be in solidarity against colonization and recognizing each community, each individual's unique relationship to colonization and not making it this blanket statement. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, you know, there, you know, I've gotten into people that they're like, well, you know, indigenous people are just as colonized as we are, but the difference is those life ways while the white thing might be challenged. The fact is like, I don't speak my whatever, wherever I'm from. I don't have that language. Exactly. Uh, I don't have, there is not in living memory or near living memory, traditional life ways. There is documentation of mm. indigenous people Af- in not just in North America, but South America, Hawaii, as you mentioned, uh, Africa, Asia, parts of Europe, with the Sami people. Right? right. But it's like, I can't say that you and me are the same. Because, you know, my colonization goes back thousands and thousands of years in Europe. Like, that's the fact is, look at Rome. What happened, and it's very interesting, you and I have had this conversation, what Rome did to the barbarians is not dissimilar from what America did to the indigenous people of this continent. Arming people against one another, trying to offer assimilation for one, but extermination of the other. And then, you know, of course, making treaties and then fucking killing them. And right. you can argue they're still doing it to this day by pitting us, you know, pitting federal tribes versus state tribes and not allowing right. us to have that discourse about what does it mean for indigenous liberation 
it's mm-hmm. it just becomes kind of fizzled out because we're too busy arguing about who's really indigenous and who's not. Right. And of course, uh, there's also the discussion of when people talk about colonization in the past tense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still going. Um, it's yeah, still going. I remember there, there is a trend of what's the, sometimes the term is patriotic socialists. And I know we're getting off task, but this is relevant because it's not an uncivilized podcast episode if we don't shit on the left at least twice. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's the patriotic socialist movement, which was was is a, a trend in com- Communist Party of the United States, but also in PCUSA Party of Communists of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember there's this this person arguing colonization ended with like primitive accumulation. Like it's over. We're all colonized. Colonization doesn't exist anymore. It's like, how can you argue that? Let's say, let's, let's make it the most simple. And this is reductive, but for the sake of the argument, there are still reservations in which the U S either government or corporations encroach on all the time. That is still at its most base level. Let's ignore everything else, right? Most reductive argument. That's still colonization. Exactly. And so I don't get that. Or if, if it's funny, then people are like, well, what about all the other countries? I'm like, yeah, fuck them too. I don't think you get what we're getting at here is fuck yeah. all of them. It's not just, <laughs> it's not, again, it's not just the experiences of, for lack of a better term, the red nation. It's experiences of all people that are colonized, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's weird because we have such like recent, you know, attacks on indigeneity, especially in the United States. You know, we had standing rock not that long ago. Uh, when they were trying to build that pipeline through sacred, you know, Lakota lands. Or, um, you know, we have ICWA being overturned, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is basically the ability for indigenous children to stay within the indigenous community and not be adopted out uh, into non-indigenous homes. Um, you know, these things are happening. That's literally an attack on our culture and on our children. It's not over. And so I, I just think that a lot of people, specifically white people, in a lot of instances, are... They, they have removed themselves so much from the idea that they are an indigenous people, and whether that's by force or by choice, there are some cultures that did it by choice, um, and they have removed this idea that they are responsible for colonization, and they stick to the history books that say this is what happened to the Indians and now it's over, and everything after that does not matter. It's not something that people want to talk about. So, yeah, I just, I mean, it is what it is, you know? So I guess because we're still talking about the the topic of race, mm-hmm. what I mean, we've talked, I we kind of touched on this before, but I can't be on. I'll be honest, I can't remember if it was in the episode that was deleted or not. So the <laughs> issue of the, you know, yeah. fun, funny thing we don't need to get into, uh, but on the issue of ethno states, nationhood, mm-hmm. and exclusion, what is the role of non-indigenous people in a decolonized western hemisphere in a first nations union is it is it as some people fear the next white genocide <laughs> so um, are you yeah. going to do are you plainly are you going to do what conservatives thought south africans were doing to white people a couple of years ago <laughs> <laughs> you know since we're talking about white folks specifically i'll start with white folks i think that white folks suffer from millennia of cultural trauma you know we just talked about it Um, and I think something that's important is that since white folks are such a blank canvas, in essence, they have an absence of culture. Um, most of them, most white folks have an absence of culture. They've accepted sort of like Americanization. Like, you know, you ask a lot of white folks, like, what's your ethnicity? And they'll say, oh, I'm an American. You know what I mean? 
um, it kind of leaves this blank canvas to be able to mold. And so, you know, in my in my culture and in the culture of a lot of indigenous nations, we practice something called adoption. Uh, a historical example for most people would be like going Croatan, you know, with the Roanoke colonies, when a lot of people left uh, the Roanoke colonies to join the Algonquian tribes that were in the coast uh, at the time. You know, our people believe that as long as you accept indigenous life ways specifically and that's not like become christian or die that's like if you are actively seeking to help the community if you are actively seeking to respect the earth mother of that specific region if you are doing good things for that community that community tends to adopt you in now that's not to say we're going to force tribal communities to adopt people in that's more to say that you know as a white person or even as a black person asian person etc whatever you racially identify as if you're not indigenous you know as long as you are acting in good faith and you are assisting the community in a meaningful way, especially with the fact that, you know, on this part of the continent, we are such low numbers. There's no reason why that community would not realistically put you through sort of like the traditional way of being adopted into that community. Um, and that kind of helps, you know, that build up of the, the community in general. Another option, obviously, and this is a controversial option, but, you know, if you don't want to live an indigenous life way, maybe it's time to consider going back to your motherland, which is Europe. Um, you know, the Europeans... Literally that... genocide! Literally genocide! Right, well, you know, here's the thing. The Earth is dying. I pretty much think that everyone, at least within, like, a, a left-wing circle... Um, left of center circle would agree that the earth is dying and you know having a population of people that live on this continent that's trying to heal that maintain an american identity that's not to say like you don't want to be adopted into a tribe you don't want to be uh sent back to europe i'm going to just go be a hermit that lives in a cave and does nothing and i'm just going to totally isolate myself like no one's going to stop you like no one's gonna send out like a a battalion of internal affairs officers to your house, you know, like NKVD open up. But you know, you are actively just doing that. Like that's kind of more of like uh, that's something that you should probably address with a a health professional of some sort. But if that's your choice, you know, do it by all means. But what we cannot have is people that say I am American, red, white, and blue till the end. Let's start an armed compound because what happens when you keep Americans on the continent? They come together and then they just do the exact same thing over again. You just get a recycle of uh, 1492. So you know, um, my my big thing is that I personally think that culture is one of the most important things if not the most important thing that a human being needs to have a healthy uh mental emotional spiritual uh and physical life and i think that the absence of culture leads to a lot of very dark things i think we see that with americanization and the industrialization of this land uh the destruction of natural habitat and things of that nature and so you know white people need to be healed and if they don't want to do it by 
going back to their community, their actual home community, even if it's not that legitimate, you know, like original life ways of that specific community, like that's something we can approach later. Um, and they don't want to join our community and they just want to continue being the problem. Like what, what are we supposed to do? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're putting me, you're, I'm already in a corner as an indigenous person. And by you actively resisting that sort of healing in that way, you are just continuing the colonial sort of interaction between us in my mm -hmm. personal opinion. Um, yeah. But I don't advocate for violence against people in that in in that metric. I think that that's just something that needs to be figured out when the bridge gets crossed. But I think I actually believe deeply in my heart that uh, when people the world over see the amount of healing and just the beautification, the rebeautification of our continent and our culture, they're going to want that for themselves. There's no way you see something so beautiful and so powerful and you say, "Oh, that's crazy." You know what I mean? Right. Because this right. is unprecedented. This is not, this is something we are literally, the First Nations Union is literally trying to undo apocalypse. We're trying to bring the earth back to what it was. That's not to say a specific time period, perchance, but we are trying to heal the earth and ourselves at the same time from that apocalypse, that 1492 apocalypse. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are going to really resonate with that. Yeah. So when you when let's talk about the apocalypse a little bit more. What do you what do you mean by undoing apocalypse or healing from apocalypse? Well, apocalypse is essentially the idea of the breakdown of everything that is known and is the breakdown of, you know, quote unquote society or the breakdown of basically it's when a you know a group of people, it's specifically like let's use like the more modern context of apocalypse. It's like when the world ends, you know, like when society breaks, when everything, you know is not working anymore and you have to adapt and you have to do these certain things. And so indigenous people, you know, for time immemorial, we existed in our own little space and we interacted with other people. We had our traditional life ways. Um, you know, we were capable of uh, governing ourselves based on traditional rule, traditional law. And then when the colonizers arrived and they spread disease um, when they spread their life ways, their colonial life ways onto us, they essentially, I mean, entire quote unquote civilizations collapsed, you know, like the world as we knew it ceased to exist. And within a day we were living in an entirely different world. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about too, is when, you know, reading Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, you know, by D. Brown, that's the big one for most people to understand mm -hmm. the history of colonialism, right? Great book, and I recommend it. Um, but, like, this idea that it's, for to put it in stale, 90, what is it? I think the estimations are 90 to 99% of the indigenous population of this hemisphere fucking wiped out, gone. Yep. Yep. But then it's also important to remember, most of those people never met white people. Yeah. Like the disease killed them before combination diseases or the, the raising up of one tribe or nation with weapons and trade to it mm. to basically act. And maybe this is problematic. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like kind of acting as like shot troops of colonialism in some regard against other indigenous groups. Well, yeah. Well, you, know, you know, the, I mean, it's very common knowledge. Even the Americans will teach you this. The United States colonial government took advantage of pre-existing conflict between indigenous people and they just armed each other up until you know one wiped out the other and that was kind of how it was 
um, sort of weaponized it and, you know, yeah, it became, I would say the shock troops or more, more, more likely the collaborators. <laughs> but right, right. another thing you have, again, another thing you have to understand is, you know, the world ended for us. We, it was the apocalypse. So think about all the things that people talk about, like what would happen if the earth collapsed today, people would go Mad Max style and they would go and raid and they would go form these raider bands. And, you know, you get the new California Republic going off over here and stuff like that. Like we had to adapt. We were like, holy crap, these, these scary people that have light skin are giving us freaking cannons in our hands, dude. What are we supposed to do? You know what I mean? Um, right. And so, I mean, the nations i feel i feel like if back then if they saw what would happen to us they would have changed their mind but you know only only a few prophets that have existed throughout the times of colonization had that message and it just wasn't it didn't ring true for enough indigenous people back then i guess yeah uh, before we move on i just um, because you mentioned prophets and i wanted to bring this up earlier does because you mentioned obviously indigenous autonomism as a pre-political philosophy really just meaning the ability for a group an indigenous group to exercise their autonomy like it mm -hmm. right it just it just it is a natural motive of a group right? holistically uh, i right. think the word holistic is important in that because um right. if you remove all of the aspects besides just being quote unquote free then it means something completely different right and so i'm curious do you claim how would i say this do you claim, or do you meaning the FNU heritage to previous experiments of indigenous autonomy, like Tecumseh's plan for like the indigenous nation? Was that the War of eighteen twelve? My history is failing me here. Yeah, that was the War of eighteen twelve. Yeah. Yeah. So, is there does it claim legacy? Like, oh, like we have affinity with that project, or the or like the the Seminole, you know, escape from you know, and the, the mm -hmm. exercise of traditional governance, right, against slavery. Yeah. Like, yeah. do you, is there an FNU kind of heritage of indigenous autonomism in that regard? I think you would see that some members of the FNU do have that regard. Uh, as an organization, we don't have any sort of like official thing saying, you know, like, you know, we, we are continuing the fight of Tecumseh or anything of that nature. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I said, you will see membership that does believe in that. Um, I think, again, another thing that's important to remember is that um you know specifically for people like tecumseh you know the world was ending still and i think right. that i think he was trying his best to find a way that would maintain because in his mind you know it's not like i don't think he foresaw this like what we have now this current system of tribes and like federal no 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 no, no. i think he foresaw a total complete genocide absolute mm -hmm. erasure of the indigenous you know population of north america so i think right. in his mind he was thinking i need to have a native american state so i can at least make sure that these people in my confederacy are safe um okay yeah but but i do also understand the arguments that say well that's you know that's the, that's going to lead to the deletion of traditional life ways anyways because it's adopting that european statehood mentality um so but as you as you also make clear like that's just an adaption like hindsight's 2020 right exactly exactly right he was doing what he thought was right best to at least just keep his people alive exactly and of course and it also from my understanding crossed tribal and national boundaries it brought people together yeah yeah tecumseh was trying to grow his confederacy significantly and as a matter of fact 
um, you know, some of the tribal communities that I come from were approached by uh, Tecumseh's people in terms of, you know, will you join us? Will you help us in this fight? And it actually was one of the things that led to a civil war in my community because um, right. my, my community traditionally was uh, in favor of the French, but then Tecumseh had that British backing. And so there was people that were, um, you know, trying to fight for the British and, you know, it was all proxy. It was all European proxy wars. You know what I mean? So, you know, like I said, I understand the criticisms of Tecumseh, uh, but I also can understand where he and where those people that support him are coming from. Yeah. Gotcha. So I guess it's time to move on back to the website. That was all really great stuff. Can we break down um, the platform, the, this five point platform here? Yeah, sure. Um, And so, the purpose of this platform, I guess I should give some context because people might think it's a little weird because essentially we have two platforms. Um, <laughs> the platform itself is there is a very distinct group in the First Nations Union that is looking to start almost like a First Nations Union party. And it's not to run in like mayoral elections or gubernatorial elections or to run in presidential elections, things of that nature. What a lot of people don't know is that most tribes in the United States, uh, I'm not too sure about Canada, but potentially Canada too. Most tribes in the United States, the chiefs run on a party ticket. They run on a Republican or Democrat party ticket. Um, So it is American bipartisan um, parties within those tribal groups. And these people are thinking, you know, if we can register the First Nations Union as some sort of political movement, then we have the ability to be elected into tribal office and to be able to use indigenous autonomism as a means of, you know, restructuring these tribes. I won't share my personal opinion on it, but I do know that there are people that are for and against that idea. But just because it's more of a general thing, and this is a little bit more for like a, uh, we want to be as transparent as possible with people. That's what kind of birthed this platform. Um, And so the platform is broken down into five points. Like you said, we have decolonization, land back, self-determination, environmental justice, and solidarity. And so I'll kind of go through them uh, one by one. Do you want me to read them or do you want me to just give you a synopsis? Dude, how about you list off what the points are, like their main title, and then give us a synopsis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, points one through five, uh, decolonization, land back, Self-determination, uh, self-determination, environmental justice, and solidarity. So decolonization is essentially what we have written is we reject the idea that colonialism, whether left or right wing, is a thing of the past. Instead, we recognize that colonialism is an ongoing and developing process that continues to impact indigenous peoples today. We demand the dismantling of all colonial institutions, policies, and practices that continue to perpetuate harm against indigenous peoples the world over. Um, pretty straightforward there. Do you have any questions specifically about that one? Uh, so I guess, how do you differentiate it from what other people claim is decolonization? Well, decolonization, as we've talked about, um, is, is becoming sort of this term to just mean indigenous inclusivity, um, decolonization, like it's, there's actually a joke in the native community where it's like, um, the president of the university says, you know, we are, we are sorry for the injustices that happened against native Americans. And so as a result, we have hired a dean of decolonization to fit to uh, figure out a way that we could fix it and then they just make like a land acknowledgement um decolonization is much more than just uh here's a policy saying you know the native people have uh, the right to pick berries in this national park it's much more than 
Washington, um, changing the name of a street sign from uh, Redbird to Hashihoma. It's a fl- it's like a all encompassing deletion of colonialism. Decolonization is D, which means undo, and colonization, which means colonization. So that's kind of where we <laughs> we take surprise. we take we take a a, a more um, literal sense to the word. <laughs> right. Okay. And then before we move on, just because you mentioned them, can I get your, not F and you, unless there is one, I doubt it, your opinion on the idea of like a land acknowledgement? Oh, man. I think that, I think land acknowledgements are done now in a disingenuous way. And I think that land acknowledgements are uh, traditionally something indigenous people would do to honor the like another indigenous nation us being in their presence us using maybe you know maybe someone would be going through you know i'm i have choctaw and that's sort of like my mainline identity if i went into like a muskogee creek uh kind of traditional area their village or something like that and i you know drank from their water it might be you know nice for me to say thank you to the muskogee creek but more specifically thank you to the earth in which i am on so you know, when they say, when people say land acknowledgements, it'll be like, we're meeting on the traditional homelands of the, uh, the, uh, the Lakota nation. And, you know, we're very thankful that they're allowing us to meet here and all this other stuff. It, it's not, it's not holistic. It's not freaking holistic because the Lakota saying that just kind of implies that like the Lakota nation was like a country that existed here, but there's nothing like really deep about it. So like when I ran a student organization back in the day, I would list off the nations and I would make sure to say that this is their traditional homeland in which they have originated and have lived since time immemorial. It is their holy land and they were illegally and brutally removed from this land. That's something right. that I say. That's because I want the the Nahalo folks to know. But when I am, especially, you know, I don't live in my traditional homeland. I'll walk around and I'll sing Yo Yo Halena, which is a greeting song, you know, to people. So I'll say Yo Yo Halena, Yo Halena, and then I'll list off the nations as if I'm saying hello to them. I'm saying hello to their spirit. I'm saying hello to their mm. ancestors, you know, that are inhabiting the area around it. I'm saying hello to the land that they stewarded, you know, because we are a part of the natural cycle uh, of our homelands. So, you know, I'm just, I'm honoring that. So that's what a land acknowledgement in like a traditional indigenous sense would mean. I just think it's been co-opted and now it's like, I've seen landlords have land acknowledgements. It's like, yeah. do, you not, do you not see the irony? <laughs> Holy fuck. Yeah. Holy fuck. Yeah. Okay. I just, I was just really curious just as I know that's always something that I, you know, primitive, you know, the left is really oddly weird divided on. And then like yeah. even primitivists have debate about that kind of stuff, but it yeah. always, to me, like a genuine conversation comes down to what is, what's being done in relation to it. Like, are you doing it to like make yourself, is it a checkbox? Right. It's not word. It's not word alone. It's actually actions. Exactly. So I, I will say, I will say, that when I was in a position where people would ask me to read land acknowledgements or, you know, say like, Hey, does does this look good? Whatever. I at least appreciated that they thought about a land acknowledgement. Like that was nice. But like as an indigenous person who's doing all these things, like that is the least of my concerns. There is so much more for me to worry about than for a land acknowledgement to be written in my personal opinion. So like, I appreciate it. You have your heart in the right place, but you know, I have other stuff that is a little bit more pressing and important to worry about right now. Right. Gotcha. So what about land back for number two? 
Okay. Because I know that's another one similar to decolonization that, I mean, even the fucking DSA talks about land repatriation. And yeah. it's like, no, no, you, you know, you don't fucking believe that. No, you don't. So let's, so, what is, what does land back mean? I think, I mean, at this point, probably people are going to guess literally take the fucking land back. <laughs> I so, think at this point it's pretty clear, but let's make it simple. I'll, I'll read I'll read the platform's official language. So we demand the return of all stolen indigenous lands and the restoration of full indigenous sovereignty over those lands. We reject the notion of property rights and land ownership as these are colonial concepts that seek to supersede traditional land stewardship with individualistic and economic privatization. So yes, in simple terms, give us the land back. And not just and here here's the issue with the term land back. Land back means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And when you talk to some people, like, okay, so this is a very legitimate question that comes from the non-native community. What does that mean and how does that work? A lot of native people, there's no and this was actually one of the reasons I started the the OIA initially, um, was there's no unified idea of what land back looks like and the ideas that come out are more along the lines of i don't know like i've heard people say like uh farmers should have to give up excess farmland and give it to tribes or all national parks should come back to tribes or you know all these different like really strange ideas um and it's like to me land back is simple it means give us give us it all back we want it back it's ours like what the hell man you know there's over 500 treaties that have been signed with indigenous nations and all of them have been broken and the united states constitution literally says that treaties are the supreme law of the land so if the supreme law of the land is recognized as the constitution and the constitution says the supreme law of the land is treaties and you know laws and other things made pursuant um and all the treaties are broken I, and and we live in a quote unquote nation of uh, of uh, of laws. What 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 am I missing here? The United States exists illegally, and we want our freaking land back, man. Like what what's going on? So that's that's what land back means. Any questions? That's awesome. I I think that's really good. So what about self determination on point three? Um, self-determination. So indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination, which includes the right to determine their political status and freely pursue the economic, social, and cultural development of their communities. We support the rebirth of traditional governance guided by the traditional rule of traditional law while rejecting the colonial notion of a, na a nation state. One thing I do want to point out is that decolonization, land back, self-determination, all of these points are in order. Like they all feed into the next point. So self-determination literally means that we should have the right to govern our land based upon our traditional life ways, traditional rule of traditional law. That's, I mean, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty much what we're going for here. But we need people to understand that we are not referring to a nation state, which I hope we've dispelled uh, a little bit of that sort of fervor in, in the last uh, part of the conversation that we had. Yeah, okay. And... I guess then just the next point for environmental justice on point four. And before we get into that, I'm really interested in just mentioning again, uh, I've mentioned in previous episodes, the importance of indigenous peoples in protecting biodiversity. The UN has mentioned several times, there's been different, different studies that indigenous people are the guardians or stewards in the traditional idea of a biodiversity and protection of land against encroachment right because they're the ones that aren't living in ways that are destructive and killing the planet right so i just wanted to, that just made me i just wanted to mention that before you get into this yeah so i think that you know i think the official statistic is um although indigenous people globally make up less than five percent of the world population uh you know we collectively protect 80 percent of the earth's biodiversity 
that's forests, deserts, grasslands, marine environments, you know, places that we've lived for time immemorial. That that is that's us. Like we are stewarding and protecting those lands and we're making sure that they don't fall to industrialization. And so environmental justice, we recognize that indigenous people have been the most impacted by environmental degradation, pollution, and climate change. We demand the right to steward our traditional lands and waters, protect our biodiversity, and maintain our cultural and spiritual practice related to our place in the natural cycle of life. We demand recognition for our crucial role in the ongoing struggle against climate change. Any questions specifically about that point? I think that all, uh, that's all pretty clear to me. What I'm curious about is we've talked about stewardship and maybe some people are confused by that because I think the stewardship people typically understand is like the Christian idea from Genesis, right? Like when they think um, stewardship, the idea from Genesis is this, you know, how would I say it? Uh, be fruitful, multiply, like fill the planet, uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every little thing, every living thing that moves on this earth. Their idea of stewardship, which, you know, might be something that ancient Israelites believed as an indigenous group. And over time, as they became dominators, right, or they were influenced by the different tribes, which they have documented orally and written in written form. It became something else, but from stewardship and equitable relationship with the earth, it became one of domination. It, do, it I mean, it said it fucking says it. It says dominion over, right? right? So, what is stewardship in an indigenous context? Stewardship literally means taking care of the land and making sure that what we take from it, we are able to replace or we are able to not overindulge ourselves in. And so you have to remember the United States as a colony, initially its founding was specifically to take people that were quote unquote undesirable and then have them work so that they can extrapolate resources from, you know, the Western hemisphere or, you know, wherever they ended up being put and sending it back to their mother countries, whether that be France, Spain, Britain, you know, the Netherlands, whatever. And so their idea and mindset of, you know, land is that it should be used as something to make money out of or to commercialize and take from. Indigenous people, we see land as a part of the cycle that we are in. We are all a part of the cycle. We are related to every plant. We are related to every tree. We are related to every animal. We are related to the earth. It is our kinship uh, sort of system. And so we honor and respect it and we do our best to make sure that we are giving it the attention that it deserves. You know, one of the things that I think of always is the, uh, you know, with the California forest fires, when Europeans first got to California and they saw indigenous people intentionally starting fires um, to kind of, you know, uh, refertilize the grasslands and to make sure that forest fires didn't, you know, spread and destroy uh, the environment uh, of that area they were like dude what are these guys doing what are these idiots doing you know what i mean they were so upset that indigenous people were doing this that they were like these people are primitive they're stupid they're literally saying for like forest fires on purpose but fast forward to what was this two three four years ago maybe less when uh almost the entire west coast was engulfed in flames and they just now were like okay maybe the indigenous people had a point it's like no duh they lived there forever they knew how to take care of the place we were they were a part of it they 
had their role that they played in making sure that the environment was safe. I think that this idea that humanity is not natural and that humanity is, again, this synthetic identity that is, you know, a plague on the earth is just not, it's not conducive to a holistic healing of Mother Earth. You know, we have our role. We are dangerous. We are a very dangerous species because we have the ability to be greedy and to, um, you know, have the cognitive ability to conquest each other and to do all these different things that have happened throughout history. But we are still, you know, through indigenous lifeways and traditional systems of governance and law uh, and spiritual connection to the earth, we have an important role to play, you know, in protecting the earth and protecting animals and protecting the environment. And I think, I think you see that with that statistic we talked about earlier, how 5% of the population of the world is protecting 80% of the earth's biodiversity. Right, exactly. So we can move on to now to the, to the I believe it's the last point, right? Uh, solidarity. Yeah, probably, so I know, I think we've kind of been talking about this, yeah. uh, but just give us what's its relationship to these other points. Um, so solidarity, you know, we recognize the struggle of indigenous people are interconnected with the struggles of all oppressed people. We stand in solidarity with all those fighting for justice, liberation, and the right to self-determination. We will work with other organizations and movements to build a better world that is just, equitable, and sustainable for all. And then this is where we talked about we reject ethno-nationalism and chauvinism in all of its forms. Uh, a First Nations union is a union of First Nations and not a union for First Nations alone. So, I mean, that's kind of encompassing the tree of life. That's kind of encompassing this idea of the colony plantation, which is that the United States, Canada, and most of the Western Hemisphere was founded specifically, um, you know, on the bones of indigenous people and was developed and carried by the blood, sweat, and tears of enslaved African peoples. So, um, you know, we have a unified fight in terms of our liberation as uh, people that have been oppressed by colonialism. And, you know, I don't think that a First Nations Union truthfully can exist without solidarity amongst all oppressed peoples i, I don't believe that it could exist without it mm -hmm. yeah i mean i mean it makes sense right colonization is a global thing so the idea that it couldn't include other people would be weird i think you know even if it on this context it affects a certain group of people or right. it just a i shouldn't say a certain group because obviously there was hundreds of cultures that existed mm -hmm. here but you know what i mean yeah um, it's it's literally us saying, it's us literally saying, we don't believe in ethno nationalism. Like, we believe that everyone has a place on this continent and in the circle of the earth. And that needs to be respected and honored by everybody. Right. Right. So, I guess next step is a couple of things that we'll begin to wrap this up is you have the official chapters. How many chapter like what what quali I should ask what qualifies a chapter is it this idea because maybe people don't understand how the First Nations Union as it is now is organized is it essentially that if there's a certain number of people in a ethnic group or now I guess confederate cultural confederacy mm -hmm. um, is it then they become a chapter what does that look like so the first nations union has sat down um with multiple people from multiple tribal backgrounds specifically in the u.s and we've kind of mapped out like and i know using a map is like so colonial and stuff of that nature but we've kind of mapped out like this is what a traditional homeland of like you know specific tribal groups looks like and so people that come from related tribal groups come together and they form these uh confederacies and unions and these are like since the first nations union as a website is almost like it sounds kind of cringe to say this but it's like a predecessor to the first nations union as an idea 
the confederacy as a chapter is like the predecessor to those confederacies it's basically so that these people from these different tribal backgrounds can come together and they can already start the discussion about like what does it look like to heal in our community from these specific issues that specifically affect our community and it's also for them to be able to come together and sort of steer the mm. first nations union and how it comes and you know it's also a thing where these people can say okay what are some things that our community needs right now that we as a chapter of the first nations union can work on so that we can kind of you know build that relationship and build that um legitimacy in the minds of you know uh, those people when it comes to traditional governance um original life ways and stuff of that nature yeah, so to be clear, for if you know, I do know there are indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere that do listen to this podcast because they've commented, or the people that claim, you know, whether or not they are, I don't that's mm. not my problem. Sure. Um uh for those that are listening, if they look at the website, you know, as we're talking afterwards, before, whatever, and they mm -hmm. see those chapters, is this saying they can only join if they're part of these chap of these of confederacies or unions? Or mm. is it saying that these are just what are represented now? Yeah, if, I mean, if you read the the page on the chapter, it says uh, the chapters listed on this page are just a few of the many groups towards fulfilling the Red Nation prophecy. While these chapters represent a significant portion of our union, this list is not comprehensive, and we are continually expanding our network. Once we receive your membership application, our membership coordinators will be in touch to connect you with a relevant chapter. But as a financially contributing member, you have the opportunity to start a new chapter in your community. Our union welcomes uh, individuals who are passionate about the principles of indigenous autonomism and self-determination to join us in this effort. So by forming a new chapter, you'll be joining a powerful network of activists committed to building a more just and equitable world for all. So we, the reason that we have it in the U.S. is just because that was that's like the hinterland of the fnu that's like where people actually sat down and we started designing what the fnu would look like and kind of i mean it's literally this part is literally the the uh, an evolution of what the oia had all of these chapters that exist are either chapters that used to be oia chapters that have morphed into fnu chapters or they are based on that sort of uh for lack of a better term organizing style so it's it's actually kind of like organize your own but for Native American ethnic groups, in a sense. And so if you're not from one of these, all you have to do is, you know, submit your membership application and we'll figure out ways that we can get you, you know, starting a chapter. And if you are not at a stage where you can financially contribute, I think the FNU, um, we've come to the conclusion that like five bucks a year is a thing that we're looking for financially contributing members. But if you contribute time, then you also get the ability to have that, you know, membership status where you can make your own chapter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. So I guess one of the last things, if not the last thing about the website is the count. Mm -hmm. What is what is the count and what does it hope to do? Sure. So the count is named after what would be traditional indigenous uh, metrics of storytelling, um, almost like quote unquote written storytelling, but it was all uh, in a visual form back then um, called winter counts. And so basically the idea of the count is that it's like going to be the FNU's newspaper. And so we have writers that are um, all across the Western Hemisphere that are looking to contribute um, and are looking to add their voice to the count. And, and um, basically, as events happen throughout the Western Hemisphere, we want to be able to have a indigenous autonomous perspective on them. So... Right now, a lot of our people are talking about focusing on tribal elections. Some people are talking about like 
you know, what's, what's, what are governments in the Western hemisphere up to in terms of policy? Here's an indigenous struggle that's not being talked about. Um, you know, here is a cultural outlook, something like that, something like that, just so that we can expand, um, the first nation union in terms of media and letting people see actively that indigenous people are promoting this ideology. Indigenous people want to return to those life ways because that's actually something people have said. They're like, I don't think indigenous people really want this. Indigenous people want, uh, indigenous people are American patriots or indigenous people are, you know, socialist communists. They don't need this, but there is a large community of indigenous people that are looking at a indigenous autonomous perspective that are looking to organize and just haven't had that voice yet. And that's kind of what we want the count to be. Um, and also real quickly attached to the count is going to be our indigenous autonomous uh, library. And our intent for that is that people that are members or accomplices for now um, are going to have access to a wide range of indigenous autonomous literature, uh, videos, um, graphic design, stuff of that nature. And we want to get to a point where people can um, you know, submit their work and then say, hey, I would like this to be public or I would like this to be only for other indigenous autonomists uh, that are part okay. of the First Nations Union. You know, obviously as a means of respecting that author's intent and like they're kind of controlling the audience, like who they want their audience to be. Um, right. But it's just so that we can, again, showcase indigenous autonomism, showcase people's different viewpoints and takes and beliefs, because I feel as basically the main spokesman for the FNU, the person that's going out and doing podcasts and that's, you know, talking to all the, basically like PR. Um, I feel like it's hard for me to express the wide variety of views that come into the first nations union. You know, it's a union of indigenous autonomists, but because indigenous autonomism is such a umbrella term for all these different, you know, indigenous traditional belief systems, it's just hard for me to express how other people feel and like what their visions for a first nations union are. So um, that's kind of what the library is for is for people to be able to express that more openly amongst each other. Yeah. So I did kind of the idea that indigenous autonomism is not so much a dogma, right? Cause it's pre-political, even if you, you know, it's not so much an ideology, but a, a, I guess a movement. I don't know like the word cause everyone's going to have an issue with whatever term I use, right. but it seems that, you know, there's no like, you know, it's not like a communist party. You have to believe this, yeah. this, this is a hard, you know, the party right. line. You're not touting a party line. Right, right. Indigenous autonomism is a collect. Like if you were to ask me what my political identity is, I would say Pilat Sapakni, which is the Choctaw word for the old ways. So like indigenous autonomism means that, but multiplied for everybody that is an indigenous autonomous. It just means that we believe that the old traditional ways of our tribe are valid and they should be heard um, when it comes to sovereignty over us as a people. Okay. And I guess, so that's really all I had for the website, unless there's anything else on it you wanted to talk about. I think we pretty much covered everything on the website. Um, I do want to point out that um, we are looking for volunteers. If you are a member of uh, one of our constituent population, we would love to have you. Uh, we have a little list on the website where you can kind of select what you're more um, familiar with in terms of your skill set. So we would really appreciate that. Uh, becoming a member, again, you know, we have a little form on the website. Um, accomplice program. Our accomplice program is new, so do give us some patience with how we mitigate getting that working out. 
but you know we would love to be able to um, get you in a good community that is uh, looking to support the F and U. So you will be contrib. Don't think that we're just pushing you off to the side and we don't care about you. Um, you are going to be helping the F and U. You are going to be helping these different organizations expand that message of the tree of life. Um, uh, we do have an about us page, but that's again like most of these things are kind of just like the same thing written over and over again to make sure that if you, if you look up firstnationsunit.org, you, you might get a different landing page every time. So, you know, just being able to remind everybody of that. But um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's all I really have. Uh, we have uh, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube pages that we're working on. Um, having a digital presence is a new thing for the FNU, obviously, because it's a, it's not really a new entity per chance, but it's like the first time we've expressed it in a digital format. So um, we do hope to have content up there eventually. Um, it's just kind of up to our content team and like what they do. Um, but yeah, please check out our website because we spent a lot of work on it, a lot of time. <laughs> so I guess before I move to my last question, my sudden last question is, do you see the First Nations Union and I guess the, I guess this appeals to kind of the idea of states and nation states, but for a comparison, is the FNU a state within a state or almost like a government in exile, in a sense? Um, I guess it's, it's very difficult because the English language only has so many ways to describe certain things. I think what I see like the First Nations Union as right now, it like really can't be a government in exile because a government implies a centralized authority and there is no authority here. This is just a collective of people coming together and saying, how can we heal our specific communities? And what does that look like on a global scale? Like when we start to, you know, become more of a, um, for lack of a better term, like a, a actual legitimate governing force. Um, and, you know, again, like the First Nations Union, like it doesn't have laws. There's no policy, anything of that nature. It's just us coming together and forming a dialogue about these certain things. So I guess I wouldn't use the word government in exile, but I couldn't tell you what word I would use because it's not, it's unprecedented. We've had this conversation before. A lot of stuff about the First Nations Union, about indigenous autonomism, it's all unprecedented to the European, um, you know, post-Westphalian identity. It doesn't exist. It, or, or, it, it's us bringing what has existed for our people back to the forefront. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I hope that answers the question a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. And I guess my last question, and this is me being selfish and hoping to appeal to my audience, trying to connect you to them. What do you see? I know we, this is something we kind of bonded over early on, you know, in our personal relationship, but do you see affinity? Obviously, indigenous autonomism is not a Western ideology. It's not an mm -hmm. ideology in the traditional sense. It's pre-political. But do you see affinity with other tendencies or other ide and ideologies like anarcho-primitivism or green anarchy? What affinities are there with ideologies of the West? You know, I think that something that we've kind of talked about is, you know, the environmental, um, you know, aspects of anarcho-primitivism, the identity, uh, the belief essentially of uh, deletion of sort of what I would call the colonial uh, status of our lands. 
and sort of returning to that rewilding and degrowth sort of uh, mindset and, you know, having that villa. It basically, like, when we talked about it and when we first sat down and had, like, the actual conversation, we came to the conclusion, like, you're just describing, like, a white version of indigenous autonomism, but it's just not fully realized. A lot of ideologies come really close, but they're not fully realized because they don't have that idea of, like, a... Again, I, I probably said, dude you could probably have a drinking game where it's like drink every time I say the word holistic, but uh, a holistic <laughs> healing, holistic ideology um, for uh, liberation of indigenous peoples. I have sentiment for groups that seek to liberate themselves from colonialism. You know, there's a lot of Celtic groups that are looking to liberate themselves from what we would call uh english or united kingdom colonialism french colonialism um there's a lot of groups that are fighting for liberation in um the mediterranean I, literally globally i uh, my big one is like um pacific islander communities such as the maori and the samoans and um uh the different groups that exist in the pacific islands because our cultures are actually relatively similar not to say we're the exact same but like we're very similar and we do have those um very specific certain outlooks and i guess that you know it's just from an indigenous mindset but um it's funny to go on like social media and to look at those groups and the people in those like specific like facebook groups or whatever they talk just like us like they have like the same almost like dialogue with each other it's actually really sweet and it's really cool to see that um but you know it's just one of those things it's just one of those things yeah. And then what about groups? You know, there's a big debate about anarchists mm. is are the Zapatistas anarchists? That word is used on them a lot. And while there are anarchist Zapatistas, the Zapatista group or movement is not anarchistic. They describe mm -hmm. it. They describe it in like, I can't remember the wording, but they kind of describe it in a similar way to indigenous autonomism as like, it is just, first of all, the value, I think it's like, it's, uh, it's democracy, justice, and like human respect. Or I'm blanking on what the third one is. Mm -hmm. um, dignity, human dignity, um, right. right? Which are terms people see as like, wow, that's just like kind of liberal, right? But for them, like that's foundational. If you if you've been dehumanized, right? I mean, asking for like some respect. I'm, I think people just get too too into their own radical dogmas. But sure. some define it as like traditional. They've used not traditional governance, but something very close to that. Do you see affinity between indigenous autonomism of the FNU and the indigenous ideas or post-indigenous ideas, perhaps, of the Zapatistas? I would say that the Zapatistas, um, specifically the, you know, the EZLN and the Chiapas, they have um, aspects of indigenous autonomism. Um, namely, you know, they uh, govern the Chiapas region based upon the traditional rule of traditional law, typically. Uh, I do have my issues with the EZLN, you know, um, they do still claim that they are a patriotic group to Mexico. Um, but, the, right. you know, Mexican patriotism is, it's it's kind of finicky because, you know, a lot of Mexicans see themselves as um, a mix of all of the different uh, indigenous people that live in Mexico and, uh, you know, the Spaniards and all those different things. So Mexican nationalism is something that can be broken down in a lot of different ways and what they specifically mean by that. But I do, I do really think that the EZLN has like almost, um, the closest to actualized indigenous autonomism as possible. 
Um, I think it's unfair to assign a lot of terms to them um, because I, I, as far as I understand, the EZLN has not officially come out and like really 100% characterized themselves. They just know that they support indigenous, um, you know, quote unquote control over local resources, land, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, me personally, I do have a lot of love for the uh, kind of like the overall message of the EZLN. But, yeah, I do have those uh, issues with like the idea of Mexican nationalism and stuff of that nature. Mm -hmm. And then my last last example, this is partly a joke, but what about North Sentinel Island? <laughs> you know when they when they killed the missionary, I thought that's that's pretty indigenous autonomous to them, right? That, I mean, true. <laughs> you know, in general, um, you know, uncontacted tribes, uh, for for lack of a better term, are tribes that are like, hey, leave us alone. You know, literally leave those people alone. Like those people are living in the utmost bliss. Like, please, you know. I think um, I was having this conversation with someone the other day, but um, there's this tribe in Africa, and I can't remember. Actually, I think I had this conversation with you. Do you remember the name of this tribe in Africa that we were having that conversation about? Hansa? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the Hansa. So, uh, and I, I saw this somewhere, but, you know, um, the Hansa are very, very much like super athletic people. They are very fit because, you know, they are living their traditional life ways. They are, you know, living designed for their environment. Like, literally, that's how they're living their lives. And uh, they were invited to come back to, like, the United States to basically be, like, um, used as models or, you know, for athletics. And they were, like, the U.S., the place where people jump off buildings and, you know, kill themselves. <laughs> like, and so, 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 like, so, like, these people don't really understand how people can suffer so much that they want to, you know, end their lives. So it's like, let those people live that life. Like they, they're very clearly doing fine. Like go away, you know, give them some space, let them do indigenous stuff alone. Right. Right. Yeah. That made sense. And if um, you do that, then we'll let you be a hermit in the FNU. We'll make that, we'll make that deal. You can go live in the woods, you know, by yourself. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, and I find that that's really funny. That last part where you're like, isn't that the, you know, place where people jump off roofs is actually, that's such like a primitivist, like Zerzan kind of thing is like the neurosis. the term that he uses is the neurosis of it all. Right. right. This like this, combination of all these factors internalized colonialism and unsustainable lifestyle i mean really think about this and i know some people don't like the evolution argument but think about what humans evolved to do and yeah. now look at how we live um like you put a fucking wild animal i just wrote an essay on this actually you put a wild animal into a home or a place it's not supposed to be in what does it do it acts out it's defending right. itself. It doesn't know what to do. But somehow, like, we make up a thousand fucking million reasons why people are different. Yeah. But no, it's fundamentally that people are not living a way that's attuned to the, a, pro, a, a an environment that is suitable to human needs, essentially. Yeah, exactly. We don't have that. Yeah. And so the Hadza are like, yeah, well, they live that. So, like, why the fuck would they? Right. Why, exactly. why, why would they come here? They're like, you know, and... There's different groups, the indigenous peoples there, you know, of the, of this continent and other where in other places where they're like, you know, why, you know, we look at the things they have in the cities. I believe it was Benjamin Franklin too. Mm -hmm. 
I believe it was Benjamin Franklin who says, you know, we can't keep the indigenous people here, the hater cities, but we can't keep white. We can't stop the white people from running to live with the indigenous people. He's right. like, why are they going there? Right. Like, he couldn't wrap his head around it. And that's that only adds to a point that we made earlier, which was like when you see the the healing that comes from a First Nations union, if done correctly, like there's no reason why people would not want to flock to that. You know what I mean? Just because it's it's returning to like humanity in the truest sense of the word, becoming human again, having that connection again with Sacred Earth Mother, with our communities, with each other. There's no reason why there's there's no reason why someone living in the industrial world will look at that and be like, dang, that that looks really awful. I would really hate to be happy right now. Right, right. I mean, you know, and it's even funny. You looked at cases like people that were uh, uh, kidnapped or adopted, you know, kind of the weird one when they're kids. So it's kind of both um, into indigenous tribes. And then when they grow up, they don't want to leave. Right. Or when they do, they don't know how to assimilate into Western culture. Right. Um, I'm going to blank on the woman's name, but she was the mother of, is it Kwana Parker of yeah. the Comanches? Yeah, Kwana Parker, yep. Yeah, like she, they kept taking her back. Like they would find her and pull her back and she eventually killed herself. Or she let herself die, if I remember correctly, because she kept, she would keep escaping to go back to the Comanche people. They couldn't get her to stay. Yeah. You know? Uh, well, and obviously, there's cases of people that did, you know they killed themselves because they didn't want to be there. You know, some people are going to reject it because they've internalized yeah, it so much. But you know, course. there's others where where and then we told them, oh, she's crazy or Stockholm syndrome. It's like, what is the other possibility that she loved it that it right. did suit her? You know, wow, who would have thought that a woman living back in the times when women were considered property <laughs> owned by right. their, their husbands wanted to go live with a group of people that saw women as a sacred cycle of life you know the people that literally gave birth and allowed humanity to continue to exist who who would possibly want that i want to go and be oppressed that sounds based I imagine one not wanting to live in early industrial society under Puritan laws. Wow, what right. a fucking surprise! You didn't want to be there. This is literally utopia, guys. I swear, please, I promise. Oh, uh, that's great. So, I mean, this is probably a good place as any to end it. This has been episode twenty-six of the Uncivilized Podcast. Thank you so much, Malatha, for being here and taking the time. This is almost a two-hour episode. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll see what it looks like when it gets cut down, but my timer here is we're just pushing two hours. So last thing here, is there anything you want to say? Obviously, you know, if you feel interested in the FNU, Indigenous or not, I think it's, you know, fair to say, check the site out if it appeals to you, you know. Is there a way, is there is it acceptable for people to, is there a place on the site to reach out for questions without saying, oh, I want to join? Like, yeah, is there yeah, yeah. A, an interest form? If you scroll down to the bottom of the site in the uh, the bottom bar, the white bar that says First Nations Union and has like uh, all the 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 social media and stuff on it, there is FNU privacy policy, which describes our privacy policy towards the website um, and the contact us form. And if you want to contact us for any reason at all, feel free to contact us using that form. You can also subscribe to the website. That's not becoming a member. That's not becoming an accomplice. That's not volunteering. That's just every time we update the website, you will get a notification in your email inbox. You can do that where it says stay up to date and you can just type in your first name, last name. As a matter of fact, you don't have to type in your first name or last name. You just have to type in your email and then press submit. Okay. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on. And again, this has been the Uncivilized Podcast.